In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Cindy Arledge is our guest this week on Money Tales. When Cindy's parents died, they left behind a complicated estate. Cindy says there were 17 trusts that co-owned four pieces of commercial real estate, and the beneficiaries spanned multiple family members. Cindy was determined to realize her parents' legacy and see her girls receive the property that her parents wanted them to have. Other family members felt differently, so Cindy ended up buying out all of her nieces and nephews to settle the estate. This cost millions of dollars. Cindy borrowed against the real estate to make things work. So for over 15 years, Cindy and her husband have carried substantial debt to be able to give her daughters their inheritance. Ironically, today, her girls aren't interested in the real estate. This made Cindy put her ego aside and understand it's not about what she wants or what her parents wanted. It's about what her daughters want. Real legacy isn't property or assets. It's empowering each generation to be able to identify their gifts and talents so they can use them in a way that benefits the world. In addition to being a second-generation commercial real estate investment entrepreneur, Cindy is a best-selling author and matriarch of her family. Her vision is to see legacy planning become a recognized industry, and her goal is to help at least 1 million families create a legacy plan. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Cindy hits on in this conversation. First, how money will amplify whatever your relationship is with it. Second, she cautions how quickly a family can make wealth and then lose it. And third, how our minds are geared towards scarcity, from money to time and more. Cindy is focusing on having a conscious mindset and feeling abundant. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to our conversation with Cindy Arledge. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cammie, tell me what's going on in your money life. Sandy, I was so delighted when I received a gift from one of our previous podcast guests, Amanda Copeland. I received a gift from her too. Oh my gosh, she's amazing. And I think it'd be a a really important conversation to have here with our listeners about what she's doing. And she just for everybody, she sent not just Sandy and me, she sent her network some artwork that was made by the Masaka Kids Africana Orphanage, I believe from the children and the teachers there. 
Yes. I don't know about your artwork, but mine was signed on the back by a lot of children who I think participated in creating the piece that I was sent. It's so amazing. And, you know, I just was really honored to receive this gift. And she shared in her letter that her idea was to buy this artwork. And in exchange, she basically is donating land for this orphanage to call their home and build dorms so that they always own it. This amazing gift she's given that impacts so many lives. Yes. And we each got a vibrant piece of art. And Amanda asked that we take a picture with the art so that she could send it back to the kids. So it's this beautiful boomeranging gift of love and contribution and community that crosses the globe. I was very inspired by Amanda. Yeah, what money can do. And I actually reached out to Amanda and I love that she she asked herself, how do I change the world? And she wondered what would happen if every person helps someone in their own country and someone in a different country. And so she spent the last year working with an inner city school in Chicago and the Masaka Kids Africana in Uganda to help them facilitate change. And wow, what a powerful message of what money and your intention can do to impact others. Yes. Thank you, Amanda. And thank you, Cami, for bringing that up. Absolutely. Well, let's welcome our guest today, Cindy Arledge. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Sandy, Cami, thank you so much for having me here. And I love the story that you just shared, Cami. Because it talks about the power of connection. And, you know, for me, the world is getting so much smaller. I recently took my grandson to the Johnson Space Center down in Houston. And it was so fascinating to me to read the quotes from the astronauts. Because when they've gone out into space, time after time after time, they look back and say, we live on this little blue ball. And so I love, there are no boundaries from outer space. We're just human beings. So kudos for Amanda for recognizing that. And when you think about the butterfly effect, I'm just covered in goosebumps. So thank you for sharing (laughs) that story, Cammie. Absolutely. Cindy, would you introduce yourself? And in doing so, would you provide a couple pivotal moments that impacted you just so our guests can understand a little bit more about you? Well, my name is Cindy Arledge, and I'm a second-generation entrepreneur from Texas. I can divide my life into three different sections. The first section is while my parents were alive. And when you're in business with your family and you lose your parents, they passed away eight months apart. That is a traumatic time. So the first period of my life is before mom and dad, you know, while they were still alive. The second one is that after they were gone. Between that and then the third section of my life is I walked 500 miles across Spain and completed the Camino de Santiago. And so that time between mom and dad died and the Camino was just really the dark night of the soul of processing what had happened to my parents, what had happened to the relationships that I had with my brothers and their wives and my nieces and my nephews. It was just this really dark period. But then after I walked the Camino, it's a new world. Wow, Cindy. I love you got the pilgrimage in that transition. And I'm impressed that you walked. I studied that when I was in high school and made it to Santiago de Compostela, the church at the end of the pilgrimage, but I've never actually got to do the journey yet myself. So there's a lot here for us to talk us about. Well, I love your yet. <laughs> Cindy, let's go back in time and let's understand. Tell us 
about your earliest money memory? Growing up as an entrepreneur family, there wasn't a lot of line distinguishment between work and family. Mm. What was the family business? It was called Arledge and Sons Motor Company, because <laughs> this is way back in the 70s. And one of my earliest memories is that I always wanted a horse. From the age of two, I was that constant little kid. I want a horse. I want a horse. I want a horse. I want a horse. And I was so surprised that when I was 13, my dad agreed to buy me a horse if I would come to work for him. And so I found out on his deathbed that he had waited until I was 13, so he could write my salary off on taxes because you had to be 13 (laughs) (laughs) to be able to write those taxes off. And then he had had a lifelong goal of training me in business, but didn't tell me about it. And he knew that I wanted the horse bad enough that I would do anything to get it. And so from a very early age, I became the assistant bookkeeper and we were buying and selling a million dollars worth of cars a month and keeping all of our records by hand on the big ledger sheets. Oh my goodness. At 17, he made me president of our trucking company. We had portable parking lots and we were transporting these cars all over the country. So my earliest memory of really money is you could use it to get something that you really wanted. So you could use it to get something that you really wanted. But interestingly, you got what you wanted, had to work for it later. And it sounds like your father was compensating you for the work you were doing. So it wasn't as if you ended up buying the horse. Right. I mean, he gave me a salary, but I had to pay for my own horse expenses. Ah, Ah, incentives. Yeah, no. And so it was like... Well, thought out design, dad. (laughs) I know. And it was so brilliant on his part. And I was shocked to find out, like I said, I didn't find out till later that that had been his plan all along. And so it was fascinating to me. I was paying my own expenses for the horse. It just happened to be what I could earn working for him. Cindy, did you ever talk to your dad about why he was so passionate to teach you about money and business? We had lots of conversations towards the later part of his life to the very end. He was diagnosed with lung cancer around Thanksgiving and he passed in March. And so though that time period between Thanksgiving and March, and it really was Thanksgiving in February because he was doing really, really well. But then in February, he fell and broke his hip. And when he fell and broke his hip, I knew it was over because very few people survived that while they're going through cancer treatment. But it was a very special time because we opened the doors and peeled back all kinds of conversations. The two of you? It was really my dad and myself because my mom was an Alzheimer's patient. And even though she was, she just wasn't my mom anymore. So her capacity had diminished years before. And really my dad and I had, we had cracked that door open when he turned 60 and he was only 76 when he passed. And at 60, I had a conversation with him that said, dad, I'm not going to be nice to you anymore. We have things to talk about because he had had his first bypass surgery when I was in the seventh grade. He was only 40 years old and he had a second bypass surgery when he was 50. Junior high, I was always afraid that if I made my dad mad, he would die. 
He had this heart disease. And, and so I bit my tongue. But when he turned 60, I said, you've outlived your warranty program. Like there's <laughs> some things that we got to talk about. And, you know, I've been 20 years afraid to have these conversations. So really our conversation started when he turned 60. <laughs> and tell us, he turned 60, you had been afraid. How did you get the courage to have the conversation with him? I think it was because the next generation was involved. I had children by then. I was a single mom with two kids. And there was just a lot of hurt and anger. My mom and dad actually got divorced my senior year in high school and then remarried each other six months later. I know. It's a lot of trauma in your household, right? And then I had gotten married and actually got divorced and then got married again and had these two beautiful children. And I was going back to work with my dad as a single mom. And he was teaching me the real estate business at this point. He wanted me to do things. He was the kind of guy that is like my way or the highway. And so by that point in my life, taking care of my two daughters, and I just wasn't willing to play that role anymore. So I said, Dad, we got to go back and talk about things and talk about hurts that had happened between him and my mom's divorce. And I was setting boundaries with the way that he spoke to my kids. And so it was kind of self-preservation. Sounds quite empowering. How'd your dad take it? Well, I still have a button that he gave me. And it's so cute. It says, women that want to be equal to men lack ambition. I love that. (laughs) And so it took me... 15 years. And when he passed away, he kept every note and card that anybody had ever given him. He put this, think John Wayne from Texas, just like this very tough exterior. And, but he really had the heart of a kitten. And so when he passed away and we're going through all of his stuff, every card, every letter that my kids had given him, he just had this huge desk full of drawers of gifts, of cards. And then I went back and read the cards that he had given me, and I kind of matched them together. And one of the things that really made me so happy is that I earned his respect, and that was a big thing in our family. It seemed like your dad really believed in you. He did. Describe what that did for you. Mm. I'm going to tear up a little bit because it's so, I really love my parents. And still do. And that's why I think it's so important that time period of when they passed away, I didn't have that. Like, who am I as a person? The way I'd been raised was to make them happy. And then when they passed away, it was about, oof, I got to make myself happy. And it's still an ongoing process. It's been 17 years and our family is in flux again, because I was set up as the executor of my parents' estate and trustee of my kids and ended up running real estate. And it's been 17 years now. And I've realized just this past year, my dad always wanted his grandkids to receive a monthly income of rental because we had these real estate properties. Well, fast forward 17 years, and my kids are almost 40. And last year, I gave them an opportunity to buy the real estate, buy me out and, and start training them on how to run the real estate. And they don't want it. They don't want to run the real estate. And so this year, I've made the decision to sell the real estate, not be in business with them. And I'm giving myself permission to not do what my parents asked me to do, because I've done it long enough. Wow. Wow. Cindy, this is deep stuff. Welcome to my world. (laughs) 
And thank you for sharing all of this, by the way. So unpack this a little bit more for us. (laughs) Your parents make it very clear there's a legacy that they have in mind. They choose you as the child to help realize that legacy for them. Things change in the world. The rising generation of the family isn't interested in that legacy. And you decide to cut the cord. The way you described it, it sounds like there was some relief. But tell us more about that. Because it's so hard for people to do. <laughs> it is. And it, you know, it hasn't happened overnight. It's actually one I've been struggling with for years. But to give a little bit better context to that, when my mom and dad set up their estate plan, dad didn't follow everybody's advice. He was afraid of giving up control. So actually, when we settled their estate, it couldn't be settled because mother couldn't change her will because of her Alzheimer's. Dad changed his. He really wanted his grandkids. At the time, they had eight grandkids plus my stepdaughter from my current husband. And my dad changed his will and added my stepdaughter to his estate plan, but my mother couldn't because she was an Alzheimer's patient. And what ended up happening was a legal nightmare. There were 17 trusts that were set up to co-own four pieces of commercial real estate. That sounds like a nightmare. Oh my God. It was the nine children ended up one ninth of the voting share, the four pieces of property. And on mom's side, they got a third and a third and a third of the principal when they turned 25, 30 and 35. And on dad's side, they never got any of the principal at all. So we couldn't even settle the estate because the two sides of their wills wouldn't work. And so we actually had to hire attorneys and Long story short, I ended up buying out all my nieces and nephews, borrowing several million dollars to do that. And let's see, we settled the estate in November of 08, right before the crash, right before the real estate crash. (laughs) It must have been 07. And so I borrowed the several million dollars so that my girls, I was determined to see my girls get the the inheritance that my dad wanted them to have. So they're the only two that stayed in and had to buy out the voting shares. And I'm 100% leveraged on this real estate, except for my daughter's part, and the whole market crashes. I couldn't have sold those properties if I wanted to, because the rents went down 75%. And so for the past 17 years, my husband and I have carried this debt to be able to give my daughters their inheritance. Now we've whittled it down. We don't owe that much anymore. And ironically, my kids will be the only ones that receive their inheritance from their grandparents. You mean the property? Well, because the other grandkids have already blown through it. I mean, they just got their portion of the the commercial real estate at the time, but my kids have received rental income for 17 years now, plus they'll still receive their portion of the ownership. And I've got one brother that's lost everything. I've got another brother that he's chosen not to speak to me, but I don't think he's got much of it left. I've got another brother that will go through his inheritance and really isn't planning on leaving it to his kids. So what's sad to me is how quickly a family can make wealth and lose wealth. You know, mom and dad were dirt poor when they got married and they left a $10 million estate. And my kids will be the only ones that I'm actively pursuing leaving wealth to them and my grandkids. Wow. Wow. So the pilgrimage in Spain makes a lot more sense. (laughs) It's a lot to work out and think through. 
It took 100000 in attorney's fees to figure out how to dispose of that grandkid's 17 trust and all that stuff. And so was the settling of all of those affairs, Cindy, is that what caused some rifts between you and your siblings? Unfortunately, no. The rifts started even before my mom and dad passed away. I already told you my dad's personality. I had one brother that came to my mom and dad, and I've gone back and looked at the dates on this. They were in their early 60s. And he came to them and said, I need my inheritance now. I need it more than you do. And so uh, he had never been one to handle his money well. And mom and dad never intended to put them in their estate. And I remember they set up all these family limited partnerships. They did all the estate planning. And I went to my mom and dad and said, you can't leave him out. You know, he's your son. He may not be able to handle his money, but he's still your son. And so my dad was like, well, are you going to give him assets out of yours? I'm like, yeah, I didn't need their money. And so he's actually the fifth family limited partnership that was set up. They took assets from what they were intending to give me, set up for him. But then it just never got better. And so my dad ended up writing that brother out of the will again, but because mother was an Alzheimer's patient, she couldn't. And then another brother, my dad got sideways. And so he wrote two of my brothers out of the will and they knew it. And so we had some family dynamics that when dad was on his deathbed, one of my brothers that had been written out wanted to reconcile with my dad and my other sibling was trying to stop that. And so there was dynamics between me and what ended up being my co-executor because I was like, yes, let him go see his dad, you know? And so... Yeah, it's a hot mess. Cindy, I know you write books in the, on this topic and you give advice. So what are some fundamental things that families should think about, plan for, talk about that maybe help eliminate or at least minimize the hot mess? Well, I think what you guys are doing is incredibly important. To be able to have a conversation in your family about money before the chaos and before the death or the illness happens is so critical. And what I help my families do and what I'm doing with my girls is that really my legacy has nothing to do with the money. It has to do with dad hiring me at 13, trading me my dream to give me the business skills to learn how to run an entrepreneurship. And I always thought that he was the brave one. But then when I started unpacking it after my mom and dad passed away, I realized that my mom was the sneaky, brave one. At 18, she told her parents that she was going to go spend the night with a friend and flew from El Paso to Dallas and moved into a boarding house and got a job at Neiman Marcus selling clothes and going to modeling school at night and called her parents and said, oh, by the way, I moved to Dallas. And so... (laughs) Wow, Wow. firecracker. Yeah, she was the sneaky, courageous one, right? And so my inheritance, I feel like that's why I get so passionate about it is because it has nothing to do with the money, but the money is important. I think that's a really important observation. I'm so glad you shared it, Cindy. And I'm curious, knowing that the legacy was really about the relationship and the skill building and the confidence that you had from your parents, As your daughters were telling you, we don't want the real estate. How are you thinking about continuing the legacy forward, knowing it's not about the money, but there's money here, there's assets here. How'd you reconcile that? Well, the biggest aha that I've had over the last few years 
is that as a leader of the family, one of the skills that I'm working on, I help my my clients work on is, man, you got to put your ego aside. It was such a hit to my ego. Like I was going to be the second generation to break this three generational cycle. And I hired my daughter 10 years ago to teach her the real estate business. And I've been grooming her. And then for her to say, it's like, oh. And so the idea that I'm not right to give up, like I'm right, you know, that that's one of the most challenging skills to learn and to put your ego aside and understand it's not about what I want. It's about what they want and empowering each generation to be able to identify their gifts and talents and to use them in a way that to me benefits the world. That's where the real legacy is. I still have to ask, how did you put your ego aside? That's so hard to do because it's not, you're not trying to hurt anybody. You had a vision. You see the value. It's part of your story. How'd you do it? I am an avid reader and there's a plethora of books out there right now of top, top, top leaders that are willing to share their expertise in a book. The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership should just be the 15 Commitments of Conscious Living. I've been a lifelong learner my whole life. Uh, David Hawkins, I can make y'all a list of references (laughs) if you want. I read about 50 books a year, at least. And to actively seek out consciousness is how I've done it. Love that. Cindy, how would you describe your relationship with money today? Well, when my mom and dad passed away, I realized that it was confusion because money will amplify whatever your relationship is with it. So if you're greedy and you get more money, you'll be greedier. If you're generous and you get more money, you'll be generous. And if you're like me and confused, you will be more confused facing receiving more. So I think my relationship with money is less confused and I'm actively pursuing experiences and knowledge that allow me to be abundant and prosperous. Now, it doesn't come naturally because our brains are wired for scarcity. And so if we wake up in the morning and we say, I don't have enough time, then we can know that we're in scarcity mode because whatever we're in, it doesn't necessarily have to do with money. And so I'm actively engaging with my relationship with money on a daily basis to be prosperous and not scarcity. I've never thought about how we're geared toward the scarcity. When you talked about time, that was a really interesting perspective. Like just, you have to change that mindset. Yeah. And it's in all areas of your life. But but our brains are wired for scarcity because our brains are wired to keep us alive. And so it's wired for scarcity. So consciousness is an active experience of what we have as humans. And, I, and I'll tell you how I discovered it. When I was writing my first book, I had somebody say, well, do you have to have a lot of money for this legacy planning to work? And I really thought about his question and I started digging into poverty and and I discovered an author that teaches teachers how to help students who are being raised in poverty. And she did this great graph about poverty mindset, middle-class mindset and wealthy mindset, but she stopped there. And I realized it's a consciousness mindset that we can adopt to become 
prosperous and abundant instead of scarcity. And so really, when you think about this three generational cycle, it's in poverty, middle class or upper class, because, you know, they say it takes three generations to get someone out of poverty. Well, that's the same thing. You can lose wealth in three generations. So that's when I, to answer his question, discovered, aha, this is about consciousness. With that in mind, I want to go to the word legacy because we've used it several times in this conversation. And I'm curious to know how you define that word for yourself and for the clients you work with. That's a really great question. And if I could find a better word, I would, because legacy, you know, some people think of it as being your history. Some people think of it as being the money you leave behind. Harley Davidson describes it in their ads of being riding their motorcycles. So legacy is a term that I wish I could replace it. But to me, it was the only word that was big enough to describe living your life to the fullest and making a difference. As we pair your desire to live consciously with your definition of legacy, what does that mean for you, Cindy, in the years ahead of you? Well, for the years ahead of me, the conscious legacy piece is about continuing to live my life to the fullest. Because what's fascinating to me is there's a lot of people with a lot of money that don't feel that they're abundant. They're in scarcity mindset of if the stock market goes down, they feel like they've lost something. And so they're in that scarcity mindset. So it's about how I live my life, first of all, and then defining how do I want to impact future generations, which is about having those conversations, inviting them into the conversation. And then the third piece of it is like, how do I want to impact the world? You guys gave a wonderful example at the beginning of this conversation that we had. And it's about using not only the financial things that we have, but our gifts and talents, because we all have unique gifts and talents to make the world a better place. Let me ask one more level down. What do you most want to do that you haven't yet done? I'm a big believer of aspirations, ambitions, and then actions, and that aspirations are something that you can never attain. And I've really been working hard. There's an amazing author named Marshall Goldsmith that I read one of his books twice last year. It was so great. It's called The Earned Life. And so my aspirations that I identified this year is to live optimal health and then to use my gifts and talents to make the world a better place and then to live as much time above the line of consciousness that I can. Cindy, you are focused. (laughs) Yeah. I am, which is hysterical because I'm ADD. When you're passionate about something, you focus, you go deep. That's amazing. Well, and that was training. That was the training that I received at 13, keeping our books to the penny, because it was so funny. My mom's the one that trained me how to be a bookkeeper on ledger sheets. And we were buying and selling a lot of cars a month, and she would fudge a number. If she got in and she was a couple cents off, she would like, well, she just changed it over here <laughs> and make it work. But I always had to have the numbers right. And so I think it's the training that I received at a very young age that really has helped me. I drive everybody else around me crazy, but I'm able to go deep on something. I think it's amazing that your parents' business was Arledge and Sons. And their daughter has done so much to carry forward what your parents have created. And it's been a joy to hear your stories today. I'm curious, Cindy, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? Well, my next conversation is going to be tomorrow 
And it's with my book club. We really consider ourselves a tribe. And we are rereading the book, The Prosperous Heart. And it's a 12-week journey. And we will be meeting at noon tomorrow covering chapter one because we're starting The Prosperous Heart journey over again. What a great conversation, Cindy. This has been really enlightening and fun. And I really appreciate you sharing the hard stuff and the happy stuff with us. Tell us, how could our listeners reach you? The easiest way is just at cindy at cindyartledge.com. That keeps it simple. Well, thank you so much, Cindy, for that and for joining us on Money Tales. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for having me. It's just been such a pleasure. And I hope that this adds to the wonderful library that you guys have created and make it easier for families to talk about money. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.